Hey everyone, and welcome to episode two of No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. I'm your host, Hosea, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Moses. How you doing, Moses? Hello. Oh, I'm doing great. How are you, Hosea? I'm doing really good, thanks. I'm doing really good. Good, good. So, uh, we are into chapter one, finally, of Saints. Uh, In this episode, episode two, we'll be covering chapter one uh, in the following topics, really. We're going to be talking about the Smith family, progenitors, uh, interesting events that happened, you know, with uh, Joseph Smith's family. And we're also going to be talking about the context and setting uh, with the events that led up to the birth of Joseph Smith Jr. There's really a lot to talk about, so we may not get into some of the other topics of Chapter 1 until later. This might be a multi-part episode, but because we have so much information that we want to share, we're going to dive into it and uh, and get started with those parts of Chapter 1, at least. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. Let's, let's dive right in. Okay. And uh, and just to note, uh, as we mentioned in, in the introduction episode, and if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to the introduction episode, uh, episode one. We talk about sources that we tend to use, uh, in, in, that were the sources that we're planning on using uh, throughout the podcast. Here, we talk about some of our methods and how we're how we're using those sources, and including primary sources, uh, documents that are that are actual accounts of the events that are happening. Uh, but in this particular episode, we're obviously going to be using Saints, uh, which is our main benchmark. That's the the account that we're going to be diving off of for the most part. And then we're going to be comparing Saints history to that of Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. We're going to be referring to D. Michael Quinn's early Mormonism and the magic worldview. We'll also be referring to Fon Brody's No Man Knows My History. And the additional resource that I'm bringing in today will be the Sword of Laban by, I think it's William D. Moraine. I believe his first name is Doctor. It's Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Just Doctor. Actually, are you familiar? Sorry, this is a little tangent. Do you know about Philestus Hurlbut? Have you heard of that guy? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, I know about his, Yeah, Hurlbut. his name was actually Doctor. <laughs> oh, my his first gosh. name was actually Doctor. It's actually, uh, it, it, that actually plays into... Uh, occult superstition. They thought that the seventh uh, boy that was uh, that was born in a family w- was always named Doctor if people were superstitious. Uh, it's very interesting practice. I oh, that's something so, we could talk about when we get into that. So, Philosophus Hurlbut was a seventh uh, seventh boy or seventh child. He was a seventh man. Yeah, seventh seventh oh. male in in oh, his my line. Goodness. So, and his first name was Doctor. Hey everyone, just want to make a quick correction. Uh, partially right on this, the name. Doctor signifies the seventh son of a seventh son. So it's not simply one generation, seventh son. It's actually two generations, seventh son. And it is indeed part of folk magic folklore tradition where the seventh son of a seventh son is believed to have special powers of some kind. Uh, So we're going to link to that also in the show notes. So be on the lookout for that as well. Okay, back to the show. Wow, cool stuff. That, that's it, that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the stuff that you come across with this thing, man. I'm telling you. Uh, but anyway, so we're gonna be talking about the Sword of Laban by Doctor William D. Moraine. As always, uh, come visit us online at nomanknows.com. We'll continue our discussion online there. Uh, welcome all your feedback. You could also uh, reach out to us on Facebook at uh, No Man Knows, um, and then Twitter. Uh, reach out to us at No Man Knows Pod. 
You can also reach out, out to us on Reddit at our handle, uh, No Man Knows My Podcast. Also, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, go to Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your podcast app is. Give us a rating, subscribe, and if you can, please leave us a review. It's going to be really, really helpful as we move along here. We want to provide the best uh, information to you as possible, get it out to as many people as possible. So give us a rating, subscribe, review, tell your friends, uh, get the word out for us. We want to hear it all. Good, bad, and ugly. Uh, Moses is going to read all the ugly ones. I'll just keep the uh, good ones. I got a thick skin. (laughs) I can handle it. Let's talk about Joe Smith Jr.'s progenitors, his ancestors. Um, so, Moses, you read the Saints book, and what did you find in Saints that actually talked about Smith, uh, Smith or Mac family history? Well, one of the interesting things that actually included a lot of history prior to uh, Joseph Smith's upbringing, um, or actually occurring during his childhood in 1850. Uh, talked about the Indonesian island where a volcano erupted and uh, all that toxic toxic ash and, and gases went up into the atmosphere and and caused uh, lots of starvation, uh, shortages in the food supply, and and also could basically ultimately led up to this uh, this outbreak of was it cholera or um uh cholera in india oh temperatures in india dropped that's what killed thousands yeah okay i thought i I thought i read cholera uh so okay yeah and that's the it with uh with the volcano volcano we kind of talked about this in the last episode um we talked about the uh what was it the spring that never was or the the year without a summer the year without a summer or my personal favorite uh appellation for this period of time 1800 and froze to death. That's <laughs> I love that one. Uh, that's a great one. I don't think I've heard that one before. It's good. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, that's what it, that's what it's called. I, I tend to favor that one when I'm talking about it. 1800 and froze to death. That's how they remembered it because it was really, really cold. <laughs> oh yes. Okay. So yeah, I think it's interesting that the saints book, uh, it really hones in on this really graphic imagery, a very, um, very gripping introduction story of Mount Tambora exploding. And they tie it in really nicely to when the Smith family leaves Sharon, Vermont uh, to head to Palmyra. So it's kind of an interesting, really good 20,000 foot view kind of zooming down in. And I really like it. I think it's kind of an interesting way to bring the story uh, in into focus. But the interesting thing is that I don't remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember ever seeing anything about any of Joseph Smith's uh, family members. Sorry, not family members. I'm talking about other than Joseph Smith Sr., Lucy Mack Smith. I I don't really hear much in it about, um, well, one thing that we're going to talk about, which is Robert Smith or Samuel Smith. Very interesting stories around that. Yeah, and additionally, I mean, he had cousins in the area. Um, that one of them even helped on the translation of the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, so, I mean, there, there, there's extended that name family in the area. <laughs> yeah. 
Go, no, I said go ahead and throw the name out there. Who is that? Oliver Cowdery, the school teacher. I mean, he he helped him with the Book of Mormon for crying out loud. And and there's still nothing about his history or any of his family that's in the area or the relationship and the dynamic dynamics with the extended family at all. Yeah, that's actually really interesting, and I didn't really uh, put any of that into the outline. But uh, I assume that we, you know, we might get to that uh, when we get to the translation of the Book of Mormon. But the the Cowdery family goes back in history with uh, you might have read this in Brody, huh? I think she talks about it. She, they they go back in history with the Cowdery family, uh, Cowdery Senior, or rather William Cowdery, being a part of the Wood Scrape. Uh, which was uh, a group led by a guy named uh, Nathaniel Wood. Uh, and, and they were a part of that. The Smith family and the Cowdery family were a part of that group uh, in, in and around the same area. So, yeah, so he's got Cowdery uh, as a cousin wandering around. They don't really make that connection here. Uh, in fact, I don't think they make the connection later on uh, during the Book of Mormon. And, and Oliver seems to be introduced uh, only at that time. Uh, and, and to be fair, in the believing narrative, the history of the church, um, everything that I've read. I've never really seen uh, Oliver Cowdery connected to Joseph Smith Jr. in any of those other uh, accounts. We only we only find out about that uh, through other sources that tie them to the wood scrape. Um, we're not going to go into the wood scrape right now. That's, that's a different subject. And um, there are there are differing accounts with the wood scrape. Uh, but other than that, just know that there was that tie there. Yeah. Um, Another, I mean, really what I wanted to kind of bring up and get going with is the um, Robert Smith, who was the first ancestor of, of the Smith family, to sail from England to Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, he sailed over in 18, uh, he sailed over in 1638 at the age of 12. And as far as I can tell, as far as I can uh, understand from the records that I'm reading, he sailed by himself. That is, that is quite the feat. It's intense, right? Uh, yes. and, and any listener out there that knows more about this, uh, I've searched a little bit, but you know, there's so much out there. Uh, let me know. Cause I, I wasn't able to find any mention of him sailing with any family. So 12 years old, uh, evidently sailing to the Massachusetts Bay colony. He starts a life for himself and really actually gives his, his ancestors, uh, sorry, his descendants, a really good head start. And they ended up, uh, moving into, uh, I believe Topsfield. So that actually brings us to another part of uh, interesting family history on the Smith side. We're going to stick on the Smith side for a little bit, and then we're going to come back to the Mac side because uh, the Mac family had some really interesting stuff going on too. But uh, anyway, so so and just to tie this back, Saints is effectively silent on all of this family history. Um, I, I assume just for expediency, but I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff here that I think uh, I think a lot of members, non-members, anybody would be really interested to hear about. Um, and I'm going to get into one that I think is really interesting. That's Samuel Smith and John Gould, which was his father-in-law, which was Samuel Smith's father-in-law, were involved in the Salem witch trials. Oh yes. So did you read about that this at all? Very. I I did not. That is actually really interesting. I was like Sam Samuel Smith. Well, I know there's a Sam Smith that is a musician, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I've, I've been back to Salem a, a few times and oh, you have, I have, oh, you're and, ahead of me on that one. It's, oh, it's just, it's, it's beautiful and, and actually really humbling to walk through, see all the gravestones, see, see, see where, where, um, 
some of the the people who instigated uh, the witch trials and pushed things forward, you see significant areas. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, and then they have this uh, these monuments built for the for the victims of the Salem witch trial trials. So I mean, you know, you go back there and in the history, you just feel the history. Oh yeah, it's such a magnificent place to go. You could one one could say it's haunting. That's a it bad, is haunting. <laughs> that's Absolutely. A bad <laughs> I'll just edit that out. That's no, I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, Quinn is my main source for this one here. So Mike Quinn says in early Mormonism in the magic worldview, appropriately enough, uh, that John Gould and Samuel Smith. Now Samuel Smith was uh, seniors, Joseph Smith seniors, great grandfather, and John Gould was Samuel Smith's father-in-law, and these two were some of the main uh, testimony of the deposition that were connected to the trial and subsequent hanging of two supposed witches. Um, so yeah, so in, in Quinn's book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, uh, the Samuel Smith, who is the great-grandfather of Smith Sr., and John Gould, who is Samuel Smith's father-in-law, uh, actually accused two of the women, Mary Eastie and Sarah Wilds, um, who were subsequently hanged for the testimony that those two uh, offered. Um, and, and actually, I've included in our show notes, you're going to find, uh, and on our website as well, uh, a link to the primary source for Samuel Smith's deposition in that trial. And it's really interesting. Uh, he talks about this, <laughs> he talks about this incident where he goes, and this is five years after the fact, by the way, where he goes to visit the Eastie family and, and Mary Eastie thinks that he's being rude to the family essentially. And he says, yeah, I don't think I'm being rude. And she says, well, you are, and you're going to regret it essentially. And as he's leaving, as he's on horseback on his way back out, he feels something hit his arm, his shoulder. And then at the same time, he feels the wall kind of, uh, vibrate. And based on that, he assumed that Mary Eastie was a witch and, and putting a, a curse on him, essentially. It's crazy stuff, isn't it? Oh, it's just, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. <clears throat> I mean, especially now. And we're, we're uh, recording this on March 15th, 2020, and right in the middle of, of uh, the coronavirus outbreak. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're seeing... I mean, I, uh, Jose, I don't know if you've been able to go out and go shopping the past couple of days, but shelves are bare. People are going crazy. I, I just kind of think of like the, the, the panic and the, I mean, the, the virus at that point was really just witchcraft. Yeah. Exactly. But it's the same kind of case you, when you start, uh, when you start talking about the, the lizard brain, the, the amygdala, which yeah. causes, controls the fight or flight. In these situations, people look at this as kind of a, a physical threat, and they're trying to either fight the danger or run away from it. In this case, they're trying to fight it uh, by accusing others of witchcraft. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see this theme throughout uh, history in general, but also, you know, Mormon history is is not exempt from this, that when in an absence of an explanation, an adequate explanation, certain supernatural explanations seems to kind of come in and uh, and take precedence. And and finally, when 
we find out a solid answer for whatever that question may be, there is a retraction. Uh, science, typically science, comes in and, and assumes the the you know prevailing answer for whatever question that was. But whatever else is unknown at that time then gets you know relegated into that same sphere of supernatural. It must be the gods are un- unhappy with me. That's why. Uh, that's why we had uh, eighteen hundred and froze to death. I mean, it mentions in Saints, I believe, that the revivalist preachers were preaching at the time that it was because the people were uh, being sinful, and so the, this uh, volcanic eruption in, in Mount Tambora uh, in Indonesia was the result of sinfulness all the way, you know, thousands upon thousands of miles across the world. And we look at that now, and some of us may still think, okay, that there's a possibility there. Um, you know, if in particular, if you're partial to supernatural beliefs, and I say supernatural, what I mean is if you believe in a God that actually takes uh, active, an active role in the world uh, in, in punishing uh, bad people and in, in rewarding uh, good people, you're going to probably believe some of that um, because it fits your worldview. But a lot of us at this point, um, have have come to the realization that uh, when when it's thundering outside, it's just it's just pressure, you know. It's like ele- it's, it's electricity buildup, and it gets released, and it's not uh, it's not an angry god trying to uh, punish us for something that we've done. It isn't Zeus. No, it's not. Well, I mean, it could be. Well, let's just throw out the fact that maybe it could be. It could be Zeus. Uh- Hey, you know what? I'm open to any possibility at this point. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we keep our options open. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting little tidbit into the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, I bet, I bet the majority of our listeners uh, did not know that Joseph Smith Jr., his family had a connection to the Salem Witch Trials. But yeah, interesting, I sure didn't know. Yeah. But interestingly enough, after these uh, the, these witches were hanged, the ancestors that we're talking about, so Samuel Smith and John Gould, ended up settling in what Quinn, what Quinn says uh, were, were known hotbeds for occult practice. So they went to these specific geographical areas where we know that, uh, that it was very you know, prevalent in folk magic. I'm going to go ahead and back up here for a second because I think we might have been, I might have been using the term occult, uh, and I don't know if we've really mentioned what that means. So when I'm saying occult, when we're saying occult, we're not talking about something that's Satan worshiping. We're not talking about something that is uh, evil. You know, I think that's some of the in the back of our mind. Maybe that's some of the connotation that we have uh, become accustomed to. But when we talk about occult practice, what we're really talking about is, you know, another term for it would be folk magic. That's what um, D. Michael Quinn tends to use a lot in his books or these practices that were. Uh, a belief in in both pseudoscientific and uh, magical practices, these ritualistic things that you could do to, I mean, anything. You could, astrology was uh, one of these methods. You could divine your fortune from the stars. Uh, and actually divination plays into a lot of, uh, a lot of the Smith family's practices. We're going to get into that a little bit. But uh, different divination practices played into how they how they saw things in their in their world, and so when I say occulted, please don't think that that's being negative at all. Um, and I, you know, I, I would use it in synonymously with folk magic uh, or magic practice, whatever you want to call it. 
that's what it was, and that's exactly what happened. And there's plenty of evidence in the historical record to point to many people, including the Smiths, and especially the Smiths in a lot of cases, being involved in folk magic or occult practice. So also, um, Richard Bushman mentions the Salem Witch Trial uh, and the link with uh, Samuel Smith. Uh, and I think that he's the only other source that I read that mentioned that. So um, I'm, I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Richard Bushman does a really good job of being thorough. And, and, and while he may form differing opinions than that of, you know, Brody, Vogel, Quinn, any of these guys, he still understands the source material and he still is able to address it. And I think in a way that can kind of help people uh, reconcile some of that stuff. Another thing that we can get into in some of these other source material, uh, some of these other sources, I should say, uh, is some of the, you know, character, how these, how these ancestors were known in their community. Uh, Fawn Brody's very positive in No Man Knows My History uh, about the Smith forebears. She says that uh, they were good, upstanding Christians uh, and moderately prosperous. So they actually, you know, had some, some uh, money at certain points, at least. Uh, so just to say that Brody uh, is positive about uh, about Smith's ancestors. So now we come to uh, the the sorry. Now we come to the maternal line of the Smith family uh, in Solomon Mack, which was Lucy Mack uh, Smith, Lucy Mack's father. Solomon Mack actually ends up writing an autobiography later in his life which I am so thankful for because this guy had a pretty interesting life, I would say. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it compares to some of the other contemporaries because it's just one... You, you remember this the, um, the book series, the children's book series, the series of unfortunate events? Oh, yes. That's this guy's life. I'm serious. Oh, 100% man. serious. So and we, we've actually linked to um, Solomon Mack's autobiography which is titled, in part, it's a long title, but in part it's titled The Many Severe Accidents He Met With. Oh, <laughs> and he's not kidding in that because he, so he started off as a soldier in the French and Indian War as well as the Revolutionary War. Um, and it's kind of in and out. He's with his uh, units at some points. In other points, he's actually doing sort of private, uh, private business ventures. And, and he was what's called a sutler during the same period. Or sutler, I might be mispronouncing that, but... Uh, and what a, what a settler is, is somebody who actually uh, provides uh, goods, provides weapons, munitions, whatever. He sells goods and, and, and uh, provisions to the army, essentially. So aside from actually fighting in the army, he was also selling things to the army. He was really involved in, the, in these wars. Now, interestingly enough, he actually suffered from a uh, fever sore on his leg, is what he said. And since, you know, typhoid was very prevalent around that time, it's not unlikely, really, that he would have had basically the exact same injury that Joseph Smith Jr. had. Um, and when we get into Moraine's source a little bit later, we're going to find out that actually this, this particular complication of typhoid fever wasn't that uncommon. And, and there had been a lot of research done into trying to treat it. So anyway, he says he had a fever sore on his leg, too. So later in his life, he was visiting his son. His son was uh, out felling trees on his land, and somehow, accidentally, one of the trees fell on him. And he says, it crushed me almost all to pieces, beat the breath out of my body. Uh, sounds uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not great. So he he's, gets uh, crushed by this tree. Tree falls on him, smashes him, and, uh, and then his son thinks he's dead because uh, he's, he's broken all these bones in his body. 
they get him to uh to recovery he's being tended to and he's he takes about two months to recover but that whole time in the two months he was he was not able to move in fact his recovery was probably longer than two months just for two months for 60 days he wasn't able to move anything and as a result of that if you're familiar with what happens uh you know on icu or or anybody that's uh, bedridden for a long time if you're not moving you start to develop these really bad bed sores he says that he had a gigantic bed sore basically from from head to toe and Ooh. it was bad man so he never returned to full mobility he was essentially crippled all his life people that uh mentioned you know seeing him said he was an infirm old man uh actually i think that uh I'm pretty sure that Bushman mentions him too, and 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 mentions a uh, uh, another source saying that he was uh, an infirm old man who used to ride around uh, on horseback, uh, not on horseback rather, but on side saddle. So you know, just couldn't couldn't ride a horse in the normal way. So really, feel bad for the guy. Now th- that's not all. So he has all that happen to him, and then after he's quote unquote healed, he's out walking around, and some tree tree limb falls and hits him on the head. And it knocks him out, man. And it knocks him out. And so from that time forward, basically TBI, traumatic brain injury, he's suffering from epilepsy from that time forward. And he will, it's not funny. I shouldn't laugh, but man, this guy's got the worst luck in the world. And uh, so he he ends up having, the trees just hate him. He must have done something to upset the trees, honestly. Man, it's just so we not go back to trees. <laughs> you know, he should have, uh, he, he could have, there could have been a charm for that. And I think that maybe he missed out on that uh, particular yeah. folk magic lesson. Anyway, so he's, <laughs> <laughs> so he's saying that sometimes he would fall unconscious for periods of time. That's normal for an epileptic. Uh, so, so here's the kicker. He's out one day. He's got uh, an axe under his arm. He's going to maybe cut down a tree probably. And uh, I think you can see where this is going. And he loses consciousness as he's out walking around with this axe under his arm. He loses consciousness for four hours. He wakes up in a pool of blood. He's covered in cuts and bruises. And, you know, and that's the last story that he has uh, that I'm aware of, uh, of his misadventures here, his injuries that he, he had over his life. But I mean, talk about some bad luck. And, and to be fair... Later on, he's, he admits to, uh, to, to being an alcoholic. Uh, I don't mention that to be disparaging. I mean, there was a lot of people at the time that suffered from alcoholism. It, the average consumption was a crazy amount. I think I actually referenced that in episode one. But the amount of alcohol uh, people consumed was, was a lot. And him being an alcoholic isn't that surprising considering some of the events in his life. Uh, not, not to make an excuse for it, but do you, you know, you can kind of understand this guy's been through a lot. But the alcoholism actually exacerbates epilepsy. So it was it could have been likely that he was out walking around um, after drinking quite a bit. And that might have caused that that particular seizure. But I mean, to be fair, epilepsy will happen no matter what. Um, you know, it's just it's just a, a rough life. So Solomon Mack, that's uh, Lucy Mack's father. So, yeah. So Solomon Mack is uh, is Lucy's father. Yeah. Um, Fon Brody actually talks about Solomon being 78 when he wrote his autobiography. So it's kind of funny because he, the townspeople had mentioned that he kind of went around telling everybody, you know, I've had such an interesting life. I got to write a book about it someday. And it was just kind of this thing that he would come around and just talk to people about almost, it seems almost until they were kind of uh, 
a little exacerbated about him coming around like, dude, okay, just write the book already. And so, (laughs) so he's 78, which is a crazy age at that time anyway. And he finally writes his autobiography. So good for him. I'm actually really impressed. Now, writing this autobiography actually sets a precedent in the family. He writes an autobiography. Lucy writes an autobiography. Joseph writes an autobiography. And down and down is actually five generations that have done it now, um, at least. And so, um, it's really impressive because you see this kind of picked up in the family after that. Uh, a, a, some a, a real precedent of authorship. Uh, it's, Lucy actually mentions or intimates that it brought a little bit of status to the family too. So I think she thought really proudly of that, of the fact that her father was uh, was an author and the book was fairly widely read, and she definitely read it to all the kids. And that, uh, including including the the autobiographies, I can kind of see how Joseph uh, Joseph Smith uh, Jr would then take that and say, okay, I need to record events during my life as they're happening. And that's where you you get his historians Mm -hmm. or his scribes who are able to write those things down as they were happening. Yeah. I mean, he certainly starts early, uh, early and often really. I think that the main thing he struggled with was actually writing it down. I think he was probably a a slow writer. um, And and that's why he preferred other people to, uh, to be his scribe. He, he had the ability to write, and actually he wrote quite a bit. And he, he writes rather well. I mean, th- people forget the fact that spelling and grammar were not, regular, uh, were not uh, standard at this time. And so you go and look at a letter from him, it's going to be kind of hard to read. But that's the same of many people in that time. He, he wrote very beautiful uh, prose in a lot of cases, especially in his own personal history that he writes in 1832. He actually ends up going off on these tangents that are really beautiful, almost poetic, um, and, and pulling in, you know, scripture after scripture, reference after reference to the Bible. Um, so, so yeah, ta- tangents done. There's a history of writing in the Smith family. <laughs> Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack. Um, Von Brody tends to make a point that Lucy Mack was most likely uh, pretty. I won't say, you know, a a babe. Is that something that people even say anymore? I feel really embarrassed that I said that now. Um, Anyway. Oh, don't. Don't feel embarrassed. (laughs) I I, I don't know if I'm the best uh, judge for that. I don't think we can. Yeah. I well, I grew up. I, I grew up during Wayne's World and, and that kind of era. <laughs> oh, you're giving up. You're giving up too much information there. <laughs> uh, way too much information. Yeah, Wayne's World. That's too much. Yeah. So, so, but you know, Brody makes a good point that uh, she was probably fairly pretty. We, the only picture we get of her um, is either a daguerreotype or it's uh, you know a painting of some sort. It was actually really late in life. She's lost all of her teeth. Uh, she's got a lot of wrinkles, you know, and and, and that's not to say that people with no teeth and wrinkles aren't pretty or beautiful because they are. They're beautiful on the outside and the inside. But also, um, she says that, uh, you know, the fact that her sons were handsome, were well regarded by other people as being handsome and the daughters married really young, uh, that it probably means that Lucy Mack was pretty good looking, too. And we can kind of take that same logic and apply it to Smith Sr. as well. Actually, as a matter of fact, we do have a description of Smith Sr., they did call him handsome. He he was over six feet tall, which obviously is a, is a big deal. And uh, something like 200 pounds or something like that. I think 
there was mention about how he was built powerfully, so I, I guess that was attractive as well. Anyway, Smith Senior's referred to as handsome. She's most likely pretty based on, you know, circumstantial evidence. But anyway, Quinn actually brings up a really interesting thing about Joseph Smith Sr. Now, there there is a lot of evidence that Joseph Smith Sr. was involved in folk magic, that his whole family line was involved in folk magic, really. But we start to get into sort of a clear view of everything with Smith Sr. Um, he would go around and uh, there, there's an account of him going to turkey shoots and he would enchant the guns of the participants so that they wouldn't be able to kill a turkey. Uh, almost like a like a joke, I guess. <laughs> or so that he would win. I don't know. Anyway, so he says he would blow on the gun and uh, blow on the gun and fill around the lock and then tell them it was charmed and that they could not kill the turkey. There's no record of that working, but he did it. Another record actually talks about how he um, would be kind of drunk when he would do that as well. Uh, which is another thing that we'll probably get into in a little bit more detail later, but Joseph Sr. had a very well-documented drinking problem. Uh, he, he talks about it actually later on in blessings that he gives to his son, uh, sons actually, both Hiram and Joseph Jr., uh, but he had a problem with alcohol, and there was a lot of avoidance there, and it probably led to the reason that Lucy Max Smith had a real um, abhorrence to alcohol. She was a big believer in the temperance movement and in a lot of her narrative you see that theme throughout it so anyway yeah he uh he was out doing some folk magic he was really into uh divining he had, he had a divining rod uh and and he would find uh various things treasure was one of the big things he got into but also before that he was a uh, he was into water witching or water divining have you ever seen water divining done I, i've seen videos of water divining that's interesting stuff isn't it it is. Yeah. And you're just wondering, okay, um, what's, what's actually causing the sticks to move? Well, Vogel has a lot to say on it, and I think it's actually really interesting what he says, because he talks about it being referred to scientifically as, a, as the idiomotor response. It's basically, you're unconscious of it, but you're, you're doing the movement yourself. So, and then finally, we, we have a couple of different notes put together. Uh, Lucy in her autobiography actually talks about it a lot. She was given a really sizable dowry by, uh, Stephen Mack. Stephen Mack was a really successful businessman. It was, uh, it was her, um, older brother. I have to double check that older brother. And he gave her along with his partner that kind of split it 50, 50 or 500, 500. They gave her a thousand dollars, which, and it's really hard to kind of nail down what the value of a thousand dollars back then was because you know, commodities have changed dramatically. Income has changed dramatically. Land values changed, changed dramatically. It changed dramatically in that time anyway. So it was really hard to pin that down. Best estimates would put it somewhere between, you know, a couple hundred thousand, maybe up to $500,000 worth. Uh, and actually, Brody mentions it as, as her being effectively an heiress at that point uh, because she had so much money given to her. Uh, as we start to get into sort of setting the stage here, setting the environment, uh, we, we find saints. It has some mention of religious overtones, really, but not really a whole lot of you know information about the environment. Matter of fact, it seems like saints doesn't really talk much about the, the constant moving that was happening early on in the Smith life. They really just fast forward to the move from Sharon, Vermont to Palmyra, mainly because the majority of this first chapter, I mean the majority, you go look at the footnotes, it's pretty much every single footnote that's out there uh, that's that's on there is referring to Lucy Max Smith's autobiography. 
it's uh, we both know how dangerous it can be to just know one source uh, or to rely really heavily on one source. It's why we use so many sources in No Man Knows My Podcast. But it's one of those things that you look at it, you know, she tells a very interesting narrative, but there, it, it's unreliable as a, as a single source. It's unreliable. We've already kind of mentioned some of the, the folk magic stuff. The whole the whole point of Quinn's book, you might have guessed from the title, um, you know, is about folk magic. It's about occultism and it's about how they were involved in it. Um, at the time, Protestant Pro- Protestant churches had a lot of issues with occult practices. They, you know, obviously with the Salem witch trials, there was some hesitancy there. But there's a fine line between sort of witchcraft, maybe what you would call the dark magics, um, and and some of these folk magic practices, which were somewhere in the gray area, or maybe even white, depending on how you look at it. But it wasn't quite as... Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as something like what they considered witchcraft, right? So every single state had laws. In, in fact, before that, colonies had laws against uh, occultist practices. Uh, a good example is divin- divination. These states had um, very strict laws about people that came around and they, they would say in the, in the law it would be pretending to, to divine the source of water or divine the location of treasure or something like that. So this folk magic was really predominating mainly among the poor and the uneducated. Quinn actually makes a point to say that the the elites really kind of rarely believed in it. And so, but but the interesting thing is that Quinn's trying to make a case that it was really, really uh, normal in that time. And I would kind of qualify that and say it, it was not uncommon by any means. But you, you look at the kind of people that would practice it, and it was really a lot of the people who... Um, we're, we're uneducated and, uh, and, and we're very poor. Uh, and that's why you kind of have a lot of that in the Smith lineage. So we have actually four reports of Joseph Smith Sr. using divining rods. And Orlando Saunders, which was a neighbor, uh, said that Joseph Smith Sr. and Joseph Smith Jr. both frequently divine the presence of water by a forked stick or hazel rod. We need to understand that the water divining methods have been, I mean, for... I guess centuries at this point have been examined and disproven by scientific methods. It was in fact a form of pseudoscience back in that time, meaning that it was a, a form of, you know, early on before scientific the scientific method was really put into place and and uh, really solid thing. You know, they really believed that this acted on principles uh, of science similar to you know gravity or or you know other laws of physics. For example, it was just kind of accepted by them as something that was. Uh, a reality, at least by them. But I mean, yeah, so we have, we have a lot of history of, uh, of water divining being disproven. Uh, and, and most, the most recent information that we have is from the USGS, United States Geological Survey. If you go to usgs.gov and you actually look up some of their information, and we will actually link to this in the show notes too, they have a whole, uh, pamphlet on water divining and how it's not effective and it's not uh, something that they is an accepted practice right now and that they've done studies to try to see if it was any more likely than a completely random uh, selection and it's not it's it is completely random so i've actually heard some people say yeah i know so and so he actually still is using a divining rod to this day and it's crazy how well he's able to find you know he's able to find water it's just there have been so many studies, so please take a look at that information and understand that it's it's probably not uh, not best to take anecdotal evidence. You know, somebody telling you a story 
as opposed to controlled studies that have been done uh, randomly and over time. And can be repeatable. And can be repeatable and, and peer-reviewed. Science. Exactly. We really love science. So, um, the interesting thing, another, another thing that actually Quinn brings up, we're going to rely on a lot on, uh, on Quinn here uh, for this part because he gives such great insight into this, you know, magic worldview, hence the name of the book. But uh, he's in a source that's uh, Horn's 1835 Bible Commentary. It actually mentions and outlines the use of divining rods, a uh, form of rob, rabdomancy. Rabdomancy, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But anyway, it's basically a form of, of binary revelation. It's a form of yes or no answers. It's similar to if you were to get a, um, a Ouija board and you have the yes side and you have the no side. And it's that it's that idiomotor response again. You think that something else is moving the planchette, but maybe you are without knowing it. Or if you have multiple people on it, somebody's kind of going back and forth. Um, but Horn actually describes it as as follows. I think this is actually really, really interesting. People would set up the divining rod, usually a forked rod, so it looked like a like a Y-shaped kind of rod. And they would set it up on its end and and they would ask a yes or no question. Uh, basically, should I do this or should I not do this? And and based on which direction it fell after it was balanced uh, would be the answer. So tell me if you've ever done this before, Moses. When I was a kid, I used to pick daisies. I think it's daisies? Yeah. And you would pick the, the petals off of a daisy one by one, and you would say, she loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. And whichever one you ended on, you know, she loves me. If you ended on that, then, then you're, you're set, I guess. Uh, and if you, you look ahead and you figure, I am probably going to go on, she loves me not, then you just change your, um, your luck a little bit and pull off two pedals on at once. Oops. Yeah. Oops. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> or you do like half one. I mean, we've all, yeah. done come on. We've all <laughs> yeah. tried to oh, get yes. in the system here. So, oh yeah. What oh, I, I know, found, I know all the tricks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What I found was that this actually likely has a uh, a beginning, uh, a, an origin. It originates in this occult practice of rhabdomancy, of, of basically having a yes or no answer based on, you know, which way a divining rod or a, a rod, uh, it was referred to sometimes as, at least by Mormons, as the rod of Aaron, um, which way it would fall. Now, another interesting way to do it is they would actually take, like, say, the, the length of your index finger, and they would measure the length of the rod with each incremental finger and do the same exact thing. Uh, should I go here? Should I not go in there? Should I go in there? Should I not go in there? And depending on which one you ended on, you know, that's the answer there. So, I mean, we're talking about superstitious but also this is something i mean i guess to be superstitious you really do have to believe in it but this is really something that they truly believed in and and were uh willing to you know make some pretty interesting life decisions based on some of the answers that they got from this folk magic so we know that joe smith jr actually starts using a defining rod somewhere between age 11 and 13 so this would be right around the time that they arrived in Palmyra. Um, there is a lot of evidence actually to show that Smith Sr. was using the divining rod prior to that, um, but we don't have any record of Junior using it until he gets in to Palmyra, essentially. So 11 to 13, somewhere in that range. Quinn also connects the Cowdery and Smith families. This is what we were talking about before. They met in the Woodscrape. Woodscrape was just referring to a group of people, I think I mentioned before, by Nathaniel Wood, 
And uh, and Smith Sr. was actually referred to as the leading rodsman, or, you know, somebody who had a divining rod. And uh, it's probably before Joseph, Smir- uh, Joseph Smith's birth. But anyway, it, it, there's important links there, as we mentioned before, to Oliver Cowdery and also to Oliver Cowdery's family. But also that Oliver Cowdery had the gift of the rod, quote unquote, like I just mentioned, uh, which was something that was changed in Doctrine and Covenants uh, in 1835. The original wording of Doctrine and Covenants 8, the verses have changed somewhere between 6 and 9, refer to Oliver having the gift of the rod which was to say the gift of the divining rod. This has been talked about a lot, so I'm not really going over anything new here, but maybe maybe it's new to you. But anyway, they eventually changed that in 1835 to say the gift of Aaron. But I mean, that's a pretty loose obfuscation because you can go and look at different parts of the Bible where Aaron is using something similar, basically a staff or a rod that has magical powers. That's interesting. And it's, a, it's really just a form of revisionist history, uh, my least favorite kind of history. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, finally, we have Bushman mentioning a little bit about Senior's involvement in what he calls just, quote, magical practices. And he says that that's basically a way that he used to connect with the supernatural. Uh, Bushman's whole model essentially is, is framing the magical stuff, the folk magic stuff, as a way that the Smith family, um, you know, starts to develop their, their gifts. Uh, in, in the case of Joseph Smith Jr., you know, he, he used different uh, folk magic practices to start his calling as a prophet. And it eventually morphed into something that was, you know, didn't need these other items like a, like a peep stone, seer stone, whatever you want to call it, uh, Urim and Thummim, that's a different story. Or, you know, uh, a divining rod or whatever. He moved out of that and into just direct communication eventually. So that's Bushman's model, but we'll have a lot to say about that as we as we go forward. And we we look back on those uh, on on the people that lived during that time. There were a lot of uh, treasure diggers, and the them using divining rods and and using these super uh, supernatural powers to predict or to find treasure. I I honestly can't blame them. I know when I was a little kid, I imagined I had magic superpowers, and I could cause things to move with my mind. Um, that never really happened, but I believed I could, if I really wanted it, I could do it. Cause I was told I could do anything I really wanted. And, uh, and alas, I am very much handicapped when it comes to telekinesis and that's too bad for you. Uh, it just, it, it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, can you, can you imagine how useful that would be? Oh man. I, yeah, I of mean. course. I think it's every kid's fantasy. It's like you're saying. I mean, I always, I always look back and I, I look at, I look at Harry Potter and look at uh, the the train platform, nine and three quarters. It's nine and three quarters, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, platform nine and three quarters, and the the problem is that you have to believe hard enough for you to be able to go through it. And we have this instance where uh, little Harry Potter, uh, I guess, doesn't believe hard enough, and he runs, smacks his face right into the wall. Um, <laughs> I might actually continue to use that as a as an example because we're going to come eventually to a lot of these instances where the uh, the the individual is blamed for not being faithful enough. The individual is not blamed for believing hard enough, or is being blamed for not believing hard enough. That's a real problem, um, and and it causes a lot of distress in that individual because you think, hey, something's wrong with me because maybe I didn't get an answer uh, that everybody told me that I would get or uh, whatever the matter is there. So any interesting side note, 
I I just always think of the Harry Potter, the platform nine and three quarters. You know, if you believed just hard run, enough, you would be able right to go right through it. it. Yeah. <laughs> here there's a lot more to talk about in the uh, first chapter of the saints book ask in faith uh we're going to be covering more on episode three in episode three we're going to get into some of the childhood years of joseph jr the smith family dynamics before he was born and during his growing up years we're going to talk of course about the famous leg operation that joseph smith jr underwent again really excited to share some new insights that i've gained into that we're also going to probably get into the smith family's move from sharon vermont to palmyra new york we're hoping to be able to finish up a good part of chapter one on the next episode but we're also trying to keep episode lengths to about an hour to under an hour to make them a little bit easier for you our listeners to digest of course, if you have feedback for us, either on episode length or anything else, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, email us at nomanknowsmypodcast at gmail.com or go to the website, nomanknows.com. Hit us up. Let us know. So yeah, we really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of No Man Knows My Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you would like to hear more, please show your support for us by going to your podcast app, whatever it may be, so that you can rate and subscribe to the podcast. If you really like us a lot and we really appreciate it, please leave us a rating. Uh, please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Um, and it's going to be the way that we can really grow here in the beginning. We are really doing this because we love Mormon history. We want to share it with everyone we can. One, way, one other way you can help us out is by just telling your friends and family about this. That's the best way that we could get the, get the word out there about this podcast and, and uh, increase our listenership. Uh, so please tell everybody in your circles that, uh, that you have this awesome new podcast you'd love for them to hear. No Man Knows My Podcast. And that way we could reach more people. And anybody can reach it on any, any podcasting platform out there. If you have any troubles with that, just uh, send us an email at nomanknowsmypodcast at gmail.com. Finally, you can find us at our website, nomanknows.com, or through social media on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash nomanknows, or on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter is at no man knows pod. Once again, thank you for listening to No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. Stay tuned for more exciting discussion.